Let's pray. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, are we? Are we? How are we doing? We good? Sound booth gives you the thumbs up. You guys give me the thumbs up. All right. We are continuing our study uh, through the Book of Hebrews. The sermon series is titled "Jesus First," and in just a little bit, I'm going to read to you from Hebrews chapter nine, verses one through ten. Um, that's the next passage that we're in. But this morning. Hebrews chapter 9 is really just the the launching point. We're going to read it. I'm going to make a couple comments, but we're going to let that launch us into John chapter 12 verses, uh, the verses about Palm Sunday, those verses, Uh, whatever, they'll be on the slide later too, and that's what we're going to do. Hebrews 9, launching point. John chapter 12, most of our time, uh, then the final landing point will, or yeah, Hebrews 9, launching point, John 12. Landing point, (sighs) brains, they're helpful sometimes. We're going to get there. Um, The landing point is going to be our consideration of how the events of Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, the anticipation those people felt as they were celebrating the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem, how might those events help us become people who anticipate the presence and work of God in our lives today? Okay, I think I'm good now. I think I'm back in my groove. I think I know where we're going. Let me start by asking you a question. When have you waited in eager anticipation? When's the time when... You know, you know when it's like when you're super excited and anticipating and looking forward to something, it can literally feel like, like there's a fire in your bloodstream that's flowing all throughout your body, and the anticipation just sort of tingles. I got to go to an Av Avalanche hockey game last week. A buddy invited me, had tickets, and there's just this special moment, especially if you grew up in northern Minnesota where hockey was like there was religion, and then there was like... Depends on who you are. Uh, But there's that moment right before, you know, the game begins and the teams are out and the centers are lined up and the the ref is holding the puck and everybody's just like, let's get this game started. Or if, if you have kids... And then maybe if you also have grandkids, there's that time when, when you know, you know, maybe you know your son or daughter has gone into labor or you know you're about to go into labor. And sure, maybe there's a little bit of dread, but there's also that anticipation for like, when do I get to hold my brand new baby for the first time? And that anticipation, it's not just like a mental thing. It's not just in your brain. It's, it's a physical thing and it's a spiritual thing and it gets into your whole body. When's the time you've experienced this type of eager anticipation? See if you can't recall that moment in your life and see if you can't not just recall what was happening. You know, our imaginations are powerful. We can get sights, we can get sounds, we can get memory. But see if you can recall what that felt like to have that anticipation building as you're waiting, as you're hoping, as you're excited for what is about to come. The reason I want you to think about that is because Palm Sunday was a day when 
generations of anticipation came to a moment of climax in the life of the ancient Israelites, the ancient Jewish people. It was an anticipation that had been building not for just hours, not for just weeks, not for just years, but for generations. Anticipation for the arrival of something that God had promised to his people long ago. The author of Hebrews actually references this just a little bit. In Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read through it, it largely echoes everything we talked about last week. See, God had established a covenant relationship with his people, and he established a tabernacle, a place of worship, a sacrificial system with the Day of Atonement being a pinnacle of it, and a priesthood, a people whose work was to mediate God's presence with Israel. God established that to be in relationship with his people. But that covenant ultimately was broken by Israel and ultimately failed to establish permanently the relationship God desired to have. And therefore, through the, pro through the prophets, God promised that a day would come when he would make a new covenant with his people. A new covenant that was so great that even though the old covenant functioned powerfully for many years, it would ultimately be rendered obsolete. And Israel had been waiting for this for a long time. So Hebrews chapter 9, we'll read it, and then that'll launch us into Palm Sunday. Here's chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room, with a lampstand and the table with a consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. If you were here last week, this should all sound familiar. Uh, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Which is funny because that sounds like a fair bit of detail to me. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer courtroom to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. The author of Hebrews here, to remind you, is writing to a group of 
Jewish Jesus followers living in or around Rome sometime in the middle to the late first century AD. And these Jewish Jesus followers were right on the cusp of the very first generation of Christians. And so these Jewish Jesus followers were people who in their youth were raised faithfully under what we might have called the Old Covenant. They would have deeply known the stories of tabernacle, of sacrifice, of the high, old high priesthood. But then they had met and heard the message of this man named Jesus who ushered in the long-promised new covenant, the covenant that Israel had been waiting for in eager anticipation for generations. And we get just a little hint that the author is trying to call to mind to his congregation this long anticipation because at the end of his discussion of the old covenant and its tabernacle there's two lines that i want to really focus on he says the final covenant had not yet been disclosed and therefore all the work on the old covenant we did only until that time when the new covenant would come. It's hard for me to imagine. I mean, I try to imagine. But, but it's hard for me to, to, to really let it sink in of what would it be like for an entire nation of people to have been anticipating for generations, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, building this national anticipation of God has promised that he would do something, and it's going to happen, and it's going to happen. And I say to myself, what would it have been like? What would it have looked like and sounded like and felt like when those centuries of anticipation finally broke out into the open? Well, it turns out, if you actually want to know what that looked like and sounded like and felt like, Scripture gives us a very vivid depiction of those generations of anticipation finally bursting forth into reality. I think the best story to answer that question is the story of Palm Sunday. And you can read about it. Uh, okay, sorry, got ahead of myself. Uh, because the people of Israel have been waiting with eager anticipation for the promised new covenant to arrive, and the moment when they thought they were sure that that new covenant finally arrived was Palm Sunday. You can read about it in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. If you want to turn there now, otherwise I'm going to read it from here on the screen. This is the very first Palm Sunday, the, the moment in history that inspires us having our kids come in and parade around with palm branches. It was the moment when Jesus came into Jerusalem and Jerusalem celebrated him as the one God had promised long ago, finally showing up to establish this new covenant that God had promised would be so. Here's how the author John describes it. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, 
seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I want to spend a little bit of time together using our imaginations to try and get our hearts and minds more firmly connected to this simple question. What was it like for those first people gathered on that first Palm Sunday to come out and celebrate this person, Jesus, whom they believed to be God's promised Messiah? And what was it like for them to feel that incredible budding anticipation that had been building for generations and to feel it finally spill out as they poured into the streets, as they cut palm branches from the trees and waved them and put them on the ground, as they took their own clothing off and threw it on the ground to honor Jesus as he rode in to the city of Jerusalem. I want to spend some time exploring anticipation and its feeling and its implications and its impact on the lives of those people long ago and also in our lives today. And I want to talk about three different things about what I think were true for those people that we should think about as we explore our own faithful following of Jesus today. First thing, um, when we talk about anticipation, it is assumed that we're talking about reality. The, the moments in life that have the greatest power of, of moving us to, to feel and think and express our anticipation in different ways. The greatest moments are the moments most firmly rooted in reality. Things that we know or believe are going to happen are the things that build the most powerful anticipation. And it's significant because the, the firm root in reality helps us get a little more into the minds of these first people. As a brief reminder, um, Jesus comes to Jerusalem at the beginning of one of the most largely celebrated festival in Jerusalem that happened at that time. Jerusalem long ago was a pretty small little town, not too much to really think of. If you've been to modern day Jerusalem and you've seen how busy and, and metropolitan it is, that is not what ancient Jerusalem would have been like. It would have been much smaller. However, on festival days, and especially at the Passover, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people came flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate this annual massive festival. After the first service, actually, a couple in the church, Pete and Dana Gammy, they pulled out their phone and they're like, Carl, we got to go to Jerusalem and see the road that likely people would have lined and thrown their branches and their cloaks down on. And they said two things to notice about this, Carl. First of all, 
this road is actually pretty narrow. This is not a big road. So if you have hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets, it's not like Jesus is on his donkey and there's this sort of, you know, royal wide pathway that he's proceeding down. No, no, no. He is being crammed on both sides, weaving his way through the crowd as they clamor to get a sight of him. The second thing they said, they said, Carl, it's a really steep descent down the hill and then a pretty steep ascent back up the hill. They're like, we literally were making sure we took careful steps each time so we didn't trip and fall down this hill. I think sometimes when we read stories from the Gospels, stories that happened so long ago, stories that, that we've heard since maybe since we were kids and we learned them in Sunday school and we've read them in our Bible, I think sometimes there's a danger that the way we read and experience the story in our minds can get detached from what it really would have been like. The sometimes chaotic, the probably smelly, the definitely loud and jostling reality of this huge crowd. As the Pharisees called it, they said the whole world has showed up to honor him. If we're going to be people who commit our lives to following Jesus, and as Jesus followers, um, forming a relationship with and and a worship of God, here's one thing that that, that I learned somewhere in my discipleship that I want to to have us consider about. Um, Whatever our image, whatever, whatever emotional, relational, physical, whatever image of God we have in our mind, that image forms and shapes how we relate to God and how we worship God. Dale Flanders, who was playing the piano earlier, he told me this story. He goes, um, there's this story, he doesn't know where it's from, but, but it's the Sunday school teacher who's getting ready for, getting the kids ready for Easter, and he goes, all right, kids, what's Easter about? And the kids are like, Jesus, and the cross, and they say some nice answers, and then one kid raises his hand and goes, oh, I know. That's the day when Jesus comes out of his tomb, and if he sees his shadow, then there's going to be more winter. (laughs) All right. Um, I think we've mixed, I think we've taken some things and we've mixed them together with our understanding of who Jesus is. But it turns out, I think we as adults do the same thing. I think we can take all sorts of things from our life, our relationships with our own moms, dads, brothers, and sisters, our experiences of good or evil in the world, and we can take those things, real though they are to our lives, and we can mix them together with our understanding of who Jesus was and who God is. Let me give you one little illustration. Um, I find fascinating the way that Christians throughout the centuries have drawn images of Jesus, the way we depict who he was. Here's one of the oldest types of drawings of Jesus. Um, This is called Christos Pantocrator, Jesus Christ, ruler of all things. And it's one of the most famous historical icons in the church that has been recreated in so many different ways. It's interesting considering that this is largely associated with the Western church, the church that was formed first when Emperor Constantine made Christianity, the official religion. And I can't help but notice that Jesus looks 
a fair bit like a Western kind of person, not so much like an ancient Near Eastern kind of person. In the 1940s, there was a Christian artist named Solomon Head who drew this somewhat famous devotional image of Jesus, meant to create a picture that maybe Christians could associate with, somebody that they could relate with, a real human. And this inspired all sorts of others, but another somewhat famous image of the head of Christ was this one by another artist whose name I've forgotten, but that's okay. But I look at these images, and I, I, then I take these and I, I expand it to the drawings of Jesus in some of the kids' Bibles that I have on my own shelf where he has long blonde hair and bright blue eyes, and I think, have we taken our lives and experience and mixed it together with our image of who Jesus is? And now, you know, we could quabble over how important that physical image is, but I think it represents the greater truth that our image of God directly impacts our relationship with Him and our worship of Him. The God that we imagine in our minds that we're serving is the God that we're going to try to live out our lives with. And if we put this picture in front of Jesus' own mother and brothers, I think their immediate reaction would be, oh, who's that? <laughs> they would have no idea. I quoted the New Testament scholars last week, um, N.T. Wright and Michael Bird, great um, work on getting ourselves rooted in the, in the history and the experience and the life of the New Testament. And here's what they have to say about this little thought experiment of mine. Jesus and the apostles read and understood in their own language and context constitute the basis for normative Christianity. That this is normative stems from the belief that God has revealed himself in the historical events behind the New Testament, in the writings that make up the New Testament, and in the experience evoked by the New Testament. To say it another way, the very real people gathered on that first Palm Sunday, who saw a very real Jesus, who experienced very real hopes and dreams and emotions as well as sadness and grief and despair. Those real things are the foundation of our faith. This isn't just some story that we like. This is real events that actually happened. People have considered many times, so what did Jesus look like? Here's a couple people's attempts. I can't say whether he really did or didn't, but the one on the left is an artist's or a, a computer CGI-created rendering based on a skull that was found somewhere in the area of Jerusalem, dated to roughly within, you know, a reasonable time of when Jesus lived. A skull of what they think could be a 30-year-old man. And if they reconstruct the facial features and say, oh, maybe this is what he looked like and this is what we know of people of this day, then this could be not what Jesus looked like, but the sort of person he might have been. The one on the right is an actual photograph that's been photoshopped a bit, but again by a couple New Testament scholars who said, based on what we know of Jesus, what do we think is a more accurate representation? Dark, short, wiry hair, brown eyes, probably 5'5", five, five, maybe 120 pounds, because man, he walked a lot. And while he had nutritious food, he did not have an abundance of highly processed, highly caloric food like we have today. He wore a long robe, probably tied around the waist with a rope. 
He wore leather sandals on his feet. Here's the real point. Here's the main point I'm trying to make. As we think back to Palm Sunday, as we, as we imagine this massive crowds of people coming out to celebrate Jesus because they believe God is finally bringing to bear what he promised long ago to do, all of them knew beyond a doubt that Jesus was a real person. They looked at him. They saw him. They talked to him. Heck, as we've said before, the author of Hebrews writing to this congregation whose faith is kind of struggling, people in that congregation may have, okay, maybe they weren't, but they may have, some of them may have been there the first Palm Sunday. Or, if, if that's unlikely, they almost certainly knew somebody in their extended family or in their circle of friends who had been there on that first Palm Sunday, saw it, heard it, shouted Hosanna, threw those palm branches down. This was all real experience in the lives of some real people. What about us? How do we picture God in our minds? And how have we mixed in some of our own ideas and experiences and muddled up some of our understanding of who God is? Second thing uh, I want to think about is this fact. When these people had been anticipating the coming of God's new covenant for hundreds of years, one of the things that was just so abundantly true was that as the day got, co- got closer, their anticipation was enacted. It is always true, it is always true, go ahead and hit the next slide, that we enact, we put into words and motions powerful anticipation in our lives. I remember after grad school, I, uh, or sorry, after college, me and my buddy Blake, we moved down to Tucson, Arizona with the explicit goal of goofing off for a little while. It was wonderful. But Blake is a serial entrepreneur and he can't help himself but try to find ways to make money. And one of the ways he made money was he liked to buy and sell classic cars. So one day, he says, hey Carl, I need your help. I found a 1972 Corvette Stingray, and I want to go buy it, and I want to fix it up a little, and I want to sell it and make a little money, but I want you and I to get to drive it a few times while it's in my possession. I was like, I am am with you in this plan right now. Blake, what do you need? He says, here's what I need. I need you to play the part of the mechanic, because if the person selling it thinks I have an intimate awareness of the mechanical functions of this vehicle, it gives me bargaining leverage. So what I need you to do, Carl, is while I'm talking to the guy selling it, I want you to open the hood, I want you to look at the engine and wiggle stuff. I want you to lay on the ground and slide under the car and spend a good three to five minutes under there, and then afterwards I want you to come out and talk to me as though you're giving me some sort of a report. Now, I am describing what I did. I am not prescribing this as a a good idea, or or I'm not making statements on the, the morality or the ethics of this. I'm simply describing to you what I did. So we do our little thing. Blake makes his offer, and the guy goes, all right. You know, I think we're good, but I got to go in and just confirm with my life, with my wife. 
<laughs> before I make the sale. And I remember standing there looking at this car, thinking to myself, this is gonna be really, really fun to drive. As the guy is inside and Blake and I are waiting to see if we make the deal. And I remember standing there feeling the anticipation and I literally, there was this moment, like I'm trying to play it cool, right? That's cool, no big deal. But there was this moment where I was like, I wanna drive the car, I wanna, right? Because that's what happens when powerful moments course through your veins. They can't help but burst out of you into some words and into some actions, maybe even into silly little dances. How is it that we enact our anticipation? both of celebrating what happened long ago, celebrating Easter Sunday, the, the pinnacle of the Christian year every year, but even more so, how do we enact our anticipation that the same God who rose Christ from the dead all those years ago is the very same God who is present and at work in our lives today? And he has something to do in our lives as well, for which we can eagerly anticipate his work. But then there's the last thing. We acknowledge this when we prayed, and I'll just say it again. This anticipation also comes with its own serious consequences. The joyful celebration of Palm Sunday was then followed by Good Friday, and many different pastors and authors have observed that the next morning, Saturday morning, when all the disciples of Jesus woke up, there was not a single Christian on the planet because they had all lost Hope. The story of the scriptures tells the story of people who knew Christ, and when he died, they thought they'd got it all wrong. Peter himself, the one who knew Jesus better than any, still denied him, denied having known him three times in a row. And that whole big crowd that was there on the first Palm Sunday learned what we also need to reflect on as we prepare to celebrate Easter they learned that associating ourselves with Jesus, committing to follow him with our lives, it is consequential. It has a weight. It has some burden with it. What does it mean to build our anticipation for our celebration of Easter while also keeping in mind that this celebration is in fact a commitment to a life not of just whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, but a life of Jesus, I will follow you. I think that first crowd on Palm Sunday woke up that morning, got dressed, ate breakfast, walked out the door, thought about their family, thought about their place of employment, had worries and burdens about things going wrong, had hopes and dreams about things going right. I think that first crowd lived lives very, very similar in terms of their emotions and their ideas and their relationships, very, very similar to the lives that you and I live today. And they were faced with a question. Now that God has brought in the Messiah that he promised long ago, what are we going to do about it? We've seen the joy of it, but we've experienced the suffering of watching Christ die on the cross, and now they knew the resurrection. What are we going to do about it? And that's where we'll land asking ourselves as well, if Jesus was a real person who came to, to in a true way, give life to people, life that will transform, what are we going to do about it? And I've got three suggestions for how we might be people who 
build the anticipation for our celebration of Easter in these next few days. This is what I intend to do over the next few days. I'd encourage and I'd even challenge you to find ways to do this as well. First, spend time thinking about the real Jesus. Spend time asking yourself, have I, have I mixed too much of myself and my own experience into who I think Jesus was? And because of who Jesus was, who I think God is? What does it look like to spend some time, maybe spend some time in prayer, maybe spend some time in the gospel stories going, Jesus, help me see you and know you as you really were. Because our image of God shapes our worship of God and our relationship with God and the way we then represent that God to the world around us. Second, look for ways to enact your anticipation. This is the week. This is the week which is the pinnacle of our whole Christian year every year. This is the week when we get ready to celebrate that death has been defeated and Christ has been risen again from the grave. So let's put that anticipation into action. What are the conversations you can have? What are the ways you can just express this? Maybe small ways, maybe big ways, but how will you enact your anticipation of Easter as an individual, as a family, as a church community in the week ahead. And last but not least, as we get ready to celebrate Easter Sunday, remember the way of faith is always a way in which Christ said we must count the cost. I remember um, my daughter, my six-year-old daughter Naomi one time um, really wanted to buy a new toy. And I remember her coming and being like, well, Dad, um, how much does the toy cost? Okay, here's how much the toy costs. Can I afford it? Well, let's go get your piggy bank. It's actually not a piggy bank. It's actually like a little safe with the button numbers. And it goes, when you open it. And we wrote the code on the bottom because kids sometimes have a hard time remembering the code. But it was one of those small but precious moments as a parent, seeing Naomi dump all her coins on the floor and she's a kindergartner, so counting is a big deal for her right now. And taking all the coins and counting them out. One, two, three. How much is this coin worth again, Daddy? Counting them out and going, okay, how much is the toy again? How much money do I have? Can I afford it? How much is the toy? How much do I have? Can I afford it? And I think those are the same questions. Christ is calling us to ask. How much do I have? And remember this, everything I have, I have it because God gave it to me. Because the mind and I, I have and the body I have were created by God himself. Heck, the air I breathe every minute is only there because God willed and spoke this universe into existence. The resources and the finances I have are only there because God makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall and the grass to grow. And all of our economies are enabled only because God sustains us moment by moment. How much do I have? Well, whatever that answer is, I have it all and only because God gave it to me. And what's the cost? The cost is nothing less than every ounce of our being and our whole life. But the fact of the matter is, even though that's the highest possible cost, it's always going to be worth it. When the price to pay, we can only afford because it's a cost 
God has already given to us and made possible for us. There is no cost too high. When the life God asks us to give to him is a life we only have because he first gave it to us. Theologian uh, John Yoder says it this way. To be a disciple is to share in the lifestyle of which the cross is the culmination. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that as we remember those events of Palm Sunday long ago, even as we experience the joy, even if it's just the taste of it, um, but the joy of our own children parading around and singing and waving palm branches today, God, I pray that as we consider all that's going on in our lives, the excitement of, of hopes and dreams and anticipation, the heaviness of sorrow and tragedy and grief, God, as we, as we count the cost of what it really means to commit our entire life to worshiping and serving and following you, Help us know, God, that the very first disciples weighed the exact same cost, lived the exact same sort of full, relational, emotional, hopeful, uh, sorrowful lives that we live. And when they knew you and heard your teaching and saw your resurrection, they committed their lives to following you and telling the world about you. God, may this week be a time of building that same anticipation so that we might yet again and all the more commit all of our lives to following you and telling, telling the world about you as well. And God, as always, we pray this in your precious name, the name of Jesus. Amen.